The class of 2001 was hailed with a storm of lighting of fury on their entrance and exit for West Point. Graduating 101 days before the tragedy of 9-11, the class of 2001 served as junior military officers during the initial phases of the war on terror and increasing positions of influence over the next 20 years. Bound together for four years in school and together in service to our nation and their communities, these are the stories of those graduates as we look through the grave. On this episode of Through the Gray, we'll be speaking with Thomas Moulton. Tom was a three-sport varsity athlete and two-sport team captain with dreams of attending West Point. Tom put all of his efforts into attending a service academy. When he wasn't selected, he chose to enlist in the Army as a tanker. Tom captured the attention of his leadership at his first duty station, and they were instrumental in getting his application resubmitted and approved. Tom's experience as an enlisted soldier and at the preparatory school gave him the tools to be successful at West Point, but also aimed his sights out of the mud and into the sky. Tom commissioned as an aviation officer and became an Apache pilot, serving overseas in South Korea and multiple times in Iraq. Tom retired as a trained physician's assistant and now serves the sick and injured in an emergency room. This is his story. Through the Gray has its first sponsor, Urban Industrial Northwest. Urban Industrial Northwest is owned and operated by my childhood friend, Greg Hostetter. Greg and I grew up playing in the woods and hit each other with sticks. I joined the military and Greg joined the trades. We both love the outdoors and the Pacific Northwest. Please visit his site and see the amazing work he and his team are creating. Urban Industrial Northwest is a furniture and fabrication company specializing in handcrafted products using heritage lumber deconstructed by architectural salvage companies from structures dating back to the late 1800s to early 1900s. Everything from their powder-coated hardware to their top-selling reclaimed wood desktops are carefully constructed by their team in shop to create one-of-a-kind statement pieces for your home and office needs. Check them out on their Etsy store, Facebook, and Instagram, or give them a call at 360-703-6936. And mention this ad for a 20% military discount on your order. And to top it off, shipping is free straight to your door nationwide. Urban Industrial Northwest, giving wood a third life from tree to structure to an awesome piece of furniture. Welcome to Through the Gray. We're speaking to Tom Moulton. How are you doing today, Tom? I'm doing well. Yourself? Pretty good. So first question, why West Point? Um, so I initially applied to West Point out of high school. I uh, had all my eggs in one basket and applied to every service academy except for the Merchant Marine Academy. Um, my stepbrother was a 91 grad of the Naval Academy, so that's kind of how I found out about the uh, about the service academies. And then uh, on the day that we buried my sister, I got my rejection letter from West Point. Um, she died of cancer. And so I just kind of finished out high school, uh, got a job in the construction field, and then um, then ran into an ex-con that my dad had arrested uh, and got a talk from my dad that night about your life's going nowhere fast. And then recruiter called and I enlisted that way and then eventually got into the prep school uh, through the enlisted ranks. So did you see your ultimate goal as being an officer in the military or just serving in the military? So um, when I... First enlisted, my goal was to get college money, uh, go back to my hometown and be a police officer and follow my dad's footsteps. But then when I got in the Army, um, I saw myself more on the officer side. And, you know, I didn't know it was going to turn into a career for me at, at that point, obviously. But um, I originally wanted to go to walk school and to become a pilot because we broke track in the mud and I saw two Apaches fly overhead and I said, that has to be better than this. 
And so um, started to look at my options to go there. And so I needed uh, a little bit of college in order to do that. So I started taking classes and, and then uh, my troop commander actually uh, contacted West Point and recommend that they relook at my file. And then I went and I got accepted into the prep school and was told that if I passed that, that I would get uh, admission into West Point. So at that point, you're only 17 months uh, into being enlisted. You completed basic training, you completed AIT, um, and you were at Fort Knox, Kentucky um, in a unit that supported the basic officer leader course. So you're fixing the tanks and you're helping to train new lieutenants before they go to their first unit. Correct. Was that and so fulfilling? I really thought. Or the fact that you weren't uh, doing the tactical maneuvers, was that less fulfilling because you basically fixing the tanks and handing them off to someone else to drive? Yeah, to break and give them right back. Um, <laughs> so it, it, it was, I guess I thought I was going to be shooting more in that initial 17 months I did two gunneries and so I I thought I don't know I had this glamorized vision in my head that I was going to be in a tank and and uh I don't know blowing stuff up and then I felt like I was not meaning any disrespect but more of a babysitter and maintainer than an actual tanker because there so were some that- days when they would come back back from the field and I'm literally sitting out at the wash rack watching them wash the tank and then inspecting it and being like, Oh, you missed this, this, and this. And then go back to watching them wash the tank. Now, did that drive your, your effort to, to get after college credits and to apply to be a warrant officer? Uh, I, I think being uh, knee deep in mud with a broken track was my main motivator, but um, absolutely like that. I just, uh, I felt I could do more. Now, talk me through the application to West Point. So I applied out of, I applied in high school and never applied again. And that was the thing. They said that they would just use my initial application. And I just had to supply them with my enlisted documents, which, I mean, I was in E3 about to pin E4, so I didn't have a lot. Right. So. <laughs> And I never applied again. Like it, it, I applied out of high school and, you know, I, I felt like I did everything. I was a three sport athlete, um, you know, ca- a captain of two of those sports. I spent my summers going to like different leadership camps and, and, you know, doing boys state, which I didn't have any interest in, but, you know, I was advised that um, it looked good on my application and I mean, to be perfectly honest, I, um, I think one of the things that kept me out of it was, um, was my weight. I've struggled with my weight my whole life. And I feel like that's, that's something that, um, that initially was part of the reason that I didn't get in. Now talk me through once you got accepted, uh, to the preparatory academy, that transition from being enlisted and serving at Fort Knox um, to going to the prep mm-hmm. academy. Yeah, so that that was a that was a unique path too. When I initially found out about it, I was um, I was in my troop commander's office, and and you know he told me that I've been accepted to the prep school. I said, "Well, I didn't even apply." And he was like, "Yeah, I made a phone call." Well, I found out about that later, but he said. He said, yeah, well, they must have reviewed your file or something because it was when I was leaving is when he said he made a phone call. And uh, I never heard from anybody from West Point until I was home on on, an emergency leave because my cousin was killed in a car accident. And um, my dad said, hey, there's Major so-and-so on the phone for you. And, you know, as an E3 and you have an O4 calling you, you're like, what did I do? And so, but it was somebody from the admissions office at West Point that says, said, congratulations, this is your report date, you're, and kind of walked me through the process. So then um, packed up the little things that I had because I lived in the barracks and drove back home to Michigan for a week or two of leave and then drove out to Fort Monmouth, New Jersey, 
and uh, started my what I call Camp Snoopy because it was supposed to be like a basic training, but um, it was just a couple weeks. I believe it was a couple weeks. Anyways, um, and then just went into start our math and English to bump up our SAT scores, I guess. Now, after your, your, your period of service as enlisted, what was the hard part or what was the, the most fulfilling part about the prep school? I guess the, the, I don't, I don't know if exciting is the right word, but just that, um, I'm doing it. Like, like I'm, doesn't matter how I get there, like something that I've strived for since I was in, in junior high, really. And like, I'm getting there, I'm doing it. And so like failing out of the prep school was not an option and I was going to do whatever it took to complete it. When you completed prep school, uh, and then you report for the first day at West Point. Did West Point meet your expectations when you walked in? No, I had that place on a pedestal because like I didn't get in and, you know, I was like, I did everything I could that I thought I could do to get in. And then when I got there, I was like, man, they're just like me or I don't know. It, um, the the place itself was a little overwhelming. Um, I had been to West Point for the summer program. I forget what it's called, but like the one week you go, you like your junior year of high school. So I I had been there already. Um, so I kind of had a little bit, but um, just you know, uh, the prep school is the first through our day, and so you know I feel like they're still working out a little bit of the the bugs and using us um, to work those out. But I remember my R day was much different than my roommates because I was done very, very early and he was still running around. Now, as that summer of beast kind of continued on, did it, did it feel pretty comfortable, pretty um, familiar? Yeah. So, I, I mean, so as a tanker, I went, I went through OSET, uh, one station unit training. And, um, so that was like 16 weeks of basic, like there's no, like you're now in AIT. Um, uh, so just doing this six weeks of beast, um, I guess wasn't as bad as that. So you transition from the summer of beast and you move into the academic year. Um, Mm -hmm. was it still pretty smooth sailing? No. Um, my, if my dad is still alive, he'd tell you that he got a phone call every other week saying, I'm quitting, I'm saying, I'm quitting, I'm saying, (laughs) and, um, you know, we joked about it afterwards. Um, but he would say, you know, like, I, I, I would make comments of, well, these upperclassmen are telling me how it is in the army and they've never been in there. I've been there. Like I've, I know what it's like in the air quotes, real army, which I didn't realize then I didn't know what it was like in the real army because I was stationed at Fort Knox and 116 cab. Um, but you know, still, still kind of young. So my dad and I always joked that he would get a phone call every other week on it if I was staying or going and it's one thing that, uh, I I think if you're, if your prior service versus like a a kid straight out of high school, you're used to NCOs who have 15 plus 12 plus years of experience and and training as drill sergeants or even senior NCOs who've dealt with hundreds of privates. Um, and then you walk into West point and your upperclassmen, um, have really only led other cadets and in very limited circumstances. And so their skills at, at, at leading are very, very little. They're very, very fledgling. Yeah, that's, that's a very accurate statement. So I think that's where some of my frustration came from 
And I wasn't, I feel like I had a pretty easy plea beer comparatively speaking to some of my classmates. Like I didn't get messed with a lot. So the academic portion, how did that go? Uh, terrible. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I, I, I realized that, uh, quickly that I wasn't as smart as I thought I was. And that, uh, in high school, I didn't, I didn't really do homework, really didn't study, like was able to, you know, carry a three, nine, um, in high school with very little effort. And realized quickly at West Point that if I didn't put an effort, I was not going to be at West Point. And so um, there was a steep learning curve uh, first semester freshman year about the amount of effort that I had to put into the academic side um, if I wanted to stay. Now, what was what was the the magic sauce for you? When you were enlisted and when uh, you, you demonstrated the ability to focus and to knock out tasks and have goals and achieve those. Mm-hmm. At West Point, was it just a matter of, of, of buckling down and focusing on the tasks? Well, yeah, what helped it. you get after it and, and, and make it past that academic hump? Um, just, just like I, I said before, like, I mean, if I'm being honest, it's, it's, it's the embarrassment of failure. So a uh, quick, quick side story. Um, we had a guy in my high school, uh, I won't name him, but he was an all-state wrestler, like just, just you know, the, the king of the town. Like uh, he, he went on to, uh, to wrestle in the Big Ten, and he actually went to West Point and, um, and I don't know what happened. Some people say he quit. Some people say he failed out, but the thing around my town was, well, if this guy couldn't make it, how's Tom thinking he's going to make it? And so I guess the embarrassment of failure uh, made me put the, the nose to the grindstone uh, and uh, fa- like failure just wasn't an option. What outlets, what, what opportunities did you gravitate towards, uh, did you try while you were there besides the standard academic requirements? Um, yeah, so um, like I previous, previously said, I, I, I struggled with my weight. So one of the most stressful events was uh, when we had to do height and weight. I didn't struggle with the APFT at all, ever, um, but <laughs> that, that tape test always was my nemesis. And so the outlet was going to the gym, waking up before class and or before uh, breakfast and going to the gym or, or going outside for a run. Uh, that's what I started to, to find as my outlet. Um, and, and then it helped with that tape test too. You know? As you got closer um, to graduating, Was that 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 moment in the mud looking up at the Apaches? Was that still forward in your mind on what branch you were going to pick? Uh, yeah. So, um, so a lot of our classmates would ask me if I was going back armor, and I'm like, no, absolutely not. And uh, they're like, well, why not? And I would always tell them that story. And so I was just like, man, I hope I did well enough. Um, to branch aviation, um, you know, cause that was a big roll of the dice. If I went to walk school, there's, I was going to be a pilot, you know? And, um, and so it was kind of a roll of the dice, you know, struggling academically. And I'm not a hundred percent sure on this. You could probably back me, but I think we were one of the first years where aviation actually went out. And, and I don't remember where, where it went out, but, um, I know I was at least high enough to get one of the slots. I know Tom Morley was pretty scared too. Um, and, and both you guys got into it. 
Um, when you graduated and went off to Fort Rucker, what was that like? Knowing that you had the branch that um, you, you'd wanted and, and knowing that you were, you were about to step off into that, that, uh, that next part of the journey. Yeah. So, so it was, uh, it was one of those moments that, um, you know, just internal talk that I'm doing it, you know, and, uh, I got a picture of my dad that, um, at our graduation, you know, he's got his rain coat on, uh, that he bought at, I guess the store around there. Cause it's a West Point one. And, uh, you know, and he's just waving emphatically and, 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 you know, my dad was always my number one fan, like my biggest supporter, thick or thin. And, uh, and so it was just kind of, you know, that, that, Hey, I did it. I'm doing it. And I was ready to get down to Fort Rucker to, uh, to start flight school. Little did I know that I would be doing, uh, doing a lot of snowboarding or snow, snowboarding in between phases. <laughs> <laughs> Talk me through that. What what do you mean snowboarding? Yeah, so uh, so before before you start uh, flight school, you have to do something to earn your keep. Uh, so um, my first snow snowbird job was I was on the on the funeral detail for for Rucker. So going around and performing the the funerals, um, and and then. Did phase one, which is mostly, mostly book work, at least back then it was. It was mostly just admin stuff. And then you go back into snowboarding again, which I didn't know that. So my first day um, of going in for phase one was September 11th, 2001. And I was in the shopette getting my coffee and I looked up at the screen and I said, man, that, that's a really bad pilot. I flew right into that building. And... We all know what really happened, obviously, but um, I just distinctly remember going in and grabbing my coffee and then again sent right back home. Um, I didn't realize that we weren't starting actual, the flight school portion that it was just filling out a bunch of paperwork. But And then my second snowboard uh, snowboarding job, I was in the, in the protocol office, which that was terrible. Because all you did is, you know, got rooms around and caters to any VIPs that were coming to Rucker, which being the place of flight school, like there was a lot of, a lot of VIPs that came down and then eventually started actual flight school. So what was your experience at flight school? Um, a lot easier than West Point. Um, That's for sure. I, I, I think because I, I had some of the same study habits uh, carrying over uh, from West Point. Uh, didn't have to study nearly as hard there. Um, and <clears throat> and it was, I just remember the first day in the aircraft, I was just like, man, this is so crazy when the IP first transferred the controls and, you know, it's, unlimited visibility, not a cloud in the sky. And we're, we're at a thousand feet and he hands me to him and says, okay, just keep it level. <laughs> you know, I was just, I was just like, I'm doing it. And then, you know, one of the most memorable thing I think for anybody that flies is the first time, the first day that you actually hover. Uh, and it, it just, just kind of clicks one day all of a sudden. And, uh, I don't know. I, I, flight school was okay, but, you know, you hear, um, as, as we're getting done, you hear people start starting to deploy and, and, and go fight. And so you're kind of itching to get done and do the job that we're training to do. So one of the things that at the end of, uh, flight school is airframe, mm-hmm. which airframe did you end up going into? Uh, so I picked, actually, I picked the last Apache slot and I felt bad. Uh, our classmate, Corey Farmer was sitting right behind me 
and he was the next one to pick and I knew he wanted Apaches and and he he leaned over and whispered and said don't you do it and I said I'm sorry bro I got to uh Corey actually ended up getting Apaches anyways um I guess they did did some trade but um I was in a unit with them uh later on but uh yeah I, I just I remember that <laughs> it was the last and it was the alpha model Apache too so in our class we had I think we had four longbow slots and two alpha slots and um the longbow slots went first um Joe Joe Lusk was in was in my class and um so he got one of the longbow slots and then um, and then I got one of the alpha model slots which then I got stuck going to Korea afterwards which I was like no <laughs> supposed to be going to a unit that's a plan like I'm not supposed to be going to Korea so little, little did I know that I would have plenty of time in Iraq <laughs> yeah I didn't so I did not need to be in a rush to get there talk me through the experience of being an Apache pilot, especially in Korea, because the threat is different than it is in CENTCOM and Iraq and Afghanistan, but the threat is, has been there since the fifties. Um, right. What was that experience like? Um, well, so one of the things that was unique is, um, the overwater mission in Korea, uh, not a ton of water in Iraq. And so, um, that was one of the, the unique things is um, to get Dunker qualified and, and, and overwater qualified. It's a much different animal flying that thing over water where you don't have a lot of reference points. And, uh, and, and the, the threat in Korea, you know, it's there, but uh, while we're there, you know, we're all talking like, okay, you think that they'll deploy us? You think they'll pull us out of Korea and, to, you know, and send us somewhere in, in CENTCOM? And so that's kind of where our, I felt like our minds were at some of the time. But um, there is a threat there. It's just it didn't, it didn't feel real, I guess, is the best way to say it. I mean, we, we trained and, like, it was real, right? Like, um, I was, I was only there for 11 months and we went to gunnery twice. Um, so, and field exercises, et cetera. I know um, that was the, the one thing from my experience in South Korea is because of the turnover of personnel and because of the requirement to be uh, ready to fight tonight. Um, we actually ran four tank gunneries a year, two primary and two, uh, uh, basically supplementary ones to get the additional people who rotated in. Um, so the, the volume of training was pretty high. Yeah. You didn't, you didn't have much, uh, downtime in Korea. That was for sure. And so talk me through after you're, you're done with your time in Korea, you've, you've built a decent amount of experience in the airframe. What next? Yeah, so then, um, yeah, so um, actually, I was supposed to go to Fort Carson right out of uh, flight school, and there's a snafu, and I won't get into that because it's a long story, but got diverted to Korea with the promise I could go back to Carson after doing a year in Korea. So um, that's when 3rd ACR was still at Carson, part of 4-3 ACR. So got back from Korea, uh, went through the longbow transition because... 3rd ACR was turning in, when they came back from their deployment, they were turning in their A models and getting longbows. And uh, and so went to the longbow transition uh, at Fort Rucker, went through the maintenance course, because ultimately I wanted to be uh, a Delta company commander, the maintenance company. And so went through, through that course while I was down there and then um, went to Carson signed in, found out that we were going down to Fort Hood to do um, a, a four-month train-up uh, in the Longbow uh, to get qualified as a troop in the airframe. And 
Um, so <laughs> I was at Fort Carson long enough to sign in and pack my stuff up and head down to uh, Fort Hood to, to do training. And then we got done. Uh, that, that was uh, end of July, beginning of August. And then we got done uh, right before Christmas. And so what was next after that? Deployment. So we got about a month of leave and we were headed to Iraq. And um, flying over, uh, I knew I, the Apache community is kind of small, I feel. And I knew that um, I knew that Joe was over there. And so I was excited to see him. And then um, that's, that's when he had his incident and, and passed. And so I got off, I got off the plane and, and heard about it and, you know, kind of took that, that hard. And then also, you know, kind of put the realness of what we're about to do on it too, even though it was a training accident still. Um, so got, so got to Kuwait and we were in Kuwait for ever what it seemed like it, it was four or five weeks it, they didn't know where they wanted us because third acr is so unique you know it's not you know have it's like a mini division right and and so they're like oh you have one troop of apaches and two and three troops of 58s and the blackhawk troop you don't have any chinooks like it was you know just this um hodgepodge thing so we got we ended up having a Chinook company attached to us. Um, it was a guard unit. And finally, we went to BIOP, uh, went to Camp Striker first, um, and then got moved up to Taji to augment um, third ID. Uh, got into a few scuffles in Baghdad, uh, and then, uh, and then, Colonel McMaster, well, then Colonel McMaster's came down and said, I want my Apaches up in, up in Talifar. And so then we moved up to Talifar, which all this moving made the deployment go by fast. Um, and then got up there and did Operation Restoring Rights, which was a kind of a big battle uh, in, in Talifar, giving the town back to the people. And uh, we employed what was then uh, some new tactics to avoid the small arms threat. So the Apache, just for context, is mm -hmm. a huge twin-engine helicopter with, with two, a pilot and a co-pilot, a 30-millimeter anti-tank gun, uh, and you can load it out with multiple types of rockets, whether Hellfires or 2.75-millimeter uh, anti-personal anti-tank. It's a flying tank designed to destroy armored formations. And you're in an counterinsurgency with dismounts, with RPGs uh, and heavy machine guns, sometimes uh, lower end man pads. But for the most part, you're looking at RPGs and heavy machine guns targeting you. How was that, um, that fight when you're in a flying tank? Yeah, so um, definitely uh, better to fly at night um, in that thing. Uh, and and that's one of the main reasons because of the small arms threat and the RPG threat and, uh, you know, having an RPG airburst next to your aircraft will get your attention really quick. And, and they're like, you know, you think that you're doing everything right. You're not, you know, the moon's not behind you. You know, you think that, you know, you're very cognizant of the wind, so it doesn't doesn't blow your, your noise towards them. And that's one of the reasons that we started flying around uh, upwards of 10,000 feet. You cannot see an Apache at 10,000 feet. And, you know, people always ask, well, what about the SAM threat? You can't, you can't lock onto it if you can't see it. Right. And so, um, and the SAM threat in Iraq at that time was not, 
not as big as a threat of of heavy machine gun RPG. Uh, we were definitely getting hit more with small arms fire than anything else. So take that threat away. And then, you know, we would drop down and, and shoot and then pop back up. And, you know, there, there's multiple benefits to that, not just uh, being out of the, the range of small arms fire. We could stay on station longer because you don't burn as much fuel up there. So what was the range of missions that you were asked to do? Was it a combination of defending fixed sites, a combination of support for raids and air assaults? So, um, so we were used a lot for route recon. Um, we would um, fly border security missions over uh, by by Syria. Um, we would do VIP escorts, um, and then uh, what we were used a lot was for like the soft guys and stuff. Um, either they would use us for our eyes and our FLIR, or um, they would use us as a decoy. But we would we we worked with with soft quite a bit. What was it like? Um, because in, in this environment, you're flying in, uh, for the most part, two aircraft teams. Um, what was it like being a leader in that organization where even the Blackhawks and the Chinooks were, were moving in these large formations and platoon leaders and officers were critical to the planning and execution? Um, did that differ when you were in the attack helicopter airframe? Yeah, so um, the way that the troop is organized is you have the attack platoon and the recon platoon. But in this counterinsurgency, in this, you know, we don't, there was no flot and flat. There was, you know, it was all around you. And so there really was no attack and recon platoon anymore. It was almost everybody was recon until you got into a fight, then you turned into an attack pilot. Um so platoon leader stuff uh, was was really mostly doing paperwork. It was the air mission command stuff is where you kind of get your leadership roles and, and decision making uh, during, you know, I mean, during the battle. I mean, you're directing the air support. Um, and so so that's kind of where the leadership aspect of it, you know, typically the air mission commander is is in the front seat um, since the backseater is the one that primarily flies. I mean, so the co-pilot gunner is in the front seat and then the, the pilot is in the back. And so I've, I feel like platoon, like actual platoon leader stuff uh, I missed out on because of the nature of the war we were fighting. Uh, but as far as the air mission command side, um, I feel that that was a bigger responsibility than, than, than the platoon leader side. Now you, you alluded to this. When you came back from your first deployment with third CR, um, and your experience in, in Baghdad international airport, uh, at Taji and then further North in Talifar. Mm hmm what were the big takeaways from that deployment? Um, so I think it, I think the biggest takeaway is, um, that deployments for us at least, um, were, you know, about 95% sheer boredom with 5% sheer terror, right? Like most of the time we're, we're, we're flying around waiting for a tick. And I know the guys on the ground didn't want to be in it, but that's what we were waiting for, right? To get into the fight. And, um, so that, that was, I had an expectation that it was going to be, I guess, different. And then, uh, as far as from an officer standpoint, um, the cohesiveness of the unit and knowing 
being that interpersonal leader, um, knowing the guy to your left and right, knowing, you know, he's married to two kids, like the basic leadership stuff I feel is even more important in that scenario. Um, just because of what you're going through on a daily basis, what the spouses are going through back. So it was more, I feel like the biggest takeaway from that first deployment was, um, was kind of honing how I wanted to be as a commander and knowing what we did tactically that worked versus what not worked, being adaptable um, to the fight that just because you trained back at home at NTC or wherever you trained up, um, don't get so fixated on doing it one way, be, be adaptable and flexible to the situation. Now you went back to Iraq two more times. Yeah, went. Those were both with one ID. So when I came back, um, when I came back from my first deployment, I was single at the time and went down to the career course. And when the when Branch came down to like kind of go over our roadmap, um, I said I want to go next unit going out. That's where I want to go. And they're like, well, that's one idea out of Fort Riley. I said, well, I guess I want to go to Fort Riley then. And so they said, are you serious? And I'm like, yes, absolutely. And so that's where I went. Um, and uh, that one, I volunteered to go on uh, Advan. And I came back on, on rear. And so that 15-month deployment quickly turned into like a 16-and-a-half-month deployment. And, um, that one, I, I, I was chops in the brigade talk for almost the whole deployment, which was terrible. Um, cause it, not, I got a lot of good experience, but terrible from a flying side. Like when everybody else is getting hundreds of combat hours, I'm getting hundreds of hours sitting at a desk. So um, just for the frame of reference for the people that don't understand, the, the chief of operations mm -hmm. for a brigade, uh, usually is a captain, um, is sitting in the brigade tactical operations center, listening to the radio traffic and looking at the common operating picture, which is basically a battle board for the brigade on where units are at any given time and then tracking uh, the contacts or the uh, missions that they're supposed to be executing that day um, and helping inform and influence the commander for decisions if necessary. Correct. So like any time something happened because I was on night shift and actually in our aviation brigade because we we're augmented, it was supposed to be an, o, an 04 billet, which looked good for me as a captain. But then when I pinned on major and went back to the chops position, didn't look so good. <laughs> but that's... Um, so, so yeah, so, so, you know, I, it was, it was neat from the aspect of, I got to see the bigger picture where my first deployment, I was solely at the troop level, platoon level, you know, very, very narrowly focused, not seeing the whole picture where now I go and where I was staring at a tree. Now I'm backed out and seeing the whole forest. And so that was very interesting because not only did I have our own um, organic assets, uh, I also had attached uh, UAV assets, uh, attached Air Force assets. Um, so it was, it, 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 you know, it was, uh, got to work with civilian contractors on the UAV side and then Air Force personnel on that side. So it was... Uh, it was a unique opportunity that, I mean, I felt like I, I learned a lot from, uh, but my, my S3 at the time uh, liked his things a certain way and did not like change. And so that's how I got stuck being chops for 15 months. <laughs> With the promise that when we got back, I would take the, I, I would take command of, Del of Delta Company. So, so which is what I wanted. So, yeah. Question number one, why were you in a rush to get back? A rush to get back where? 
So you, you come out oh, of Iraq, you go to the career course, uh, yeah. and, and send me to the first unit deploying. What was the rush? I was single. And there was people in my class that were married with kids and they needed to be home with their family. So send me, I'm single. I don't, I don't have any ties. And then the second question, the the Delta company, I mean, that's turning wrenches, that's maintaining helicopters. Um, That's not particularly sexy. Yeah. Um, I became an officer to lead, to lead, uh, no disrespect to warrant officers, but that's like trying to herd cats. And I wanted to lead soldiers. And the two biggest companies with the most soldiers is either Delta Company or Echo Company. And so obviously I wasn't going to be the commander for Echo Company. That's usually a ground ground guy. Um, so the next the next and I guess I got used to maintaining with the tank going all the way back to my enlisted. <laughs> um, but I, like I, I worked on my own car when I was growing up, you know, it, it was with my grandfather in the garage and, and, you know, like we didn't pay anybody to work on our cars. We did all of our own work. We, we, you know, changed our brakes, turned our rotors, you know, we did all that stuff back when cars weren't kind of a big computer. And so I guess maintaining things has always kind of been in my blood. And so I was just like, man, how, how cool would it be to be in charge of maintaining the most lethal helicopter in the world? Be a pretty cool job. How did it go? How did you like it? Uh, I loved it. My first day in command, I was told that the fleet was grounded and that I needed to go talk to the battalion commander. That was, that was the day I changed command. And I said, what? <laughs> <laughs> I was, I was going to go to lunch with my family. <laughs> what do you mean you're telling me that the fleet's grounded? And it was, uh, it ended up not being, uh, only five of the aircraft were grounded. Uh, when, when we kind of peeled away the layers and got to the bottom of it. What it was is the improper oil was put in the AGPU, AGPU being the auxiliary power unit, where you can power up the Apache without powering it up. And so the wrong oil was in there. Well, the oil goes through. And so um, my production control and my quality control officer, who are senior warrant officers, usually, or not usually, they're always maintenance test pilots, came and said, hey, we got an issue. You're in command now. And I'm like, and so at first I thought it was a joke, right? Like, oh, okay, funny, funny, messing with the new guy. And it wasn't, it was, they were serious. <laughs> and so, but then when we looked at all the log books and, you know, which Agpu and everything. And, and, and so, but that was literally my first hour of command. And so I was like, oh, maybe I made the wrong decision here. But um, as time progressed, it was the highlight of my career in the army. Um, you know, there was definitely some challenges uh, with people going AWOL right before deployment and finding them and getting them back and and stuff. But um, it was it was absolutely the best time, uh, the the best job I had. And then that final deployment, um, how did that go? So my final, so my final deployment, uh, I was, I was back in the brigade S3 shop being chops again and pin major, um, about halfway through that deployment and, uh, another one of our classmates was a branch, a branch manager and, um, my, um, Brigade Commander S3 and I were all sitting down to talk about, they wanted me to come back to Fort Riley to be the XO for the unit, for, for the uh, attack battalion, for 1-1. One, one. And um, he was like, Tom, I don't know what you're talking about. And I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, you're a loss of the branch. I'm like, what do you mean I'm a loss of the branch? 
He's like, you got accepted into P into PA school. So let's back up a little bit. Um, on my second deployment is when I made the decision that I was going to stay into retirement. And I started to think about, okay, well, I'm not going to fly when I get out of the army. What can I do when I got out of the army to support my family and, um, and just kind of a good quality of life. So then my NCIC of the, the talk was a medic. And he said, did you ever think about being a PA? And I said, what's a PA? He's like, like our, our doc, he's a PA. And I'm like, oh, like, no. And so I started to research it. And lo and behold, I was, uh, I was like out of date for everything. Like it was basically I had to go back to school and retake a bunch of science courses just to have a prayer of, get, of getting into this. And I heard it's pretty competitive, yada, yada. So I was like, okay, well. So I started taking online classes while I was in Iraq. And getting those all up to date, applied for, P, for PA school, and I deployed. And I didn't hear anything. My name wasn't on the list, so I just didn't think I got in, right? I mean, if your name's not on the list, right? And so I was like, well, I didn't get in. So that's when I started talking to uh, then Colonel Muth and um, and the S3, Todd Thornburg at the time. And we uh, started talking about my career path. And I said, well, if I can't go to PA school, I want to be a battalion commander. So let's path me that way. And then when we called branch and they said I was a boss of the branch, that's how I actually found out that I did get accepted and that it was a clerical error they put in the wrong year so it didn't populate on the database. Um, it was just a fat finger thing. And so, <laughs> so, so then I found out when I was coming back that I was going to be moving down to Fort Sam Houston and uh, going through school again. So how does that go? You're this highly trained, highly qualified air aircraft pilot. Um, and you're starting over at Sam Houston. Yeah, well, first step is uh, taking the major away and going back to captain and taking the flight pay away. So that was a major significant emotional event, right? Um, that was a pretty big hit to the paycheck. So that was, that was the first thing that, that, that I had to weigh. And then, uh, and then um, I don't know if you experienced this or not, but I feel like when you're a field grade officer, you get treated differently. Um, even though as a major, you're, you're the second lieutenant of the field grades. Um, I just distinctly <laughs> remember when I walked into uh, the PAC office on Fort Sam when I was a major, there's just like, oh, sure, yeah, right, right here, we'll take care of you. And then when I walked in as a captain, they're like, yeah, the end of the line's over there. And I was like, oh, I, okay. <laughs> it was... <laughs> You know, a little, it was a little different. So, um, I noticed that the most when I was a, a, a staff captain versus a company commander, like the rank didn't change, yeah. but the reaction that people and the way they treated you was completely different just be based off the duty title. Yeah. So as a captain at, so, at, at, at Sam Houston. Yeah, so so uh, Captain of Sam Houston, we get um, we get our brief our briefs all done and all of our paperwork filled out. We get enrolled into the University of Nebraska. That's all in a two week period, right right before Christmas, um, and we get briefed by the head of the of the uh, of the schoolhouse that this is this is your job. You might as well think that you're deployed. You're not going to see your family. This is a fast-paced school. And just know that it'll be over in 16 months. <laughs> and I, like, we all just kind of looked at each other. It was just like, okay. And she wasn't lying. Like, um, I, like, I tell people, they're like, I was like, that's the hardest school I've been to, hands down. And... And they're like, "What? but you went to West Point. I said, yeah, I know. <laughs> and I struggled. But this was, and I think a lot had to do that I wasn't medical. 
at all. I, and so it was hard to pick up the medical terminology portion of it. And I'm like, oh, if I knew that word meant that, I would have known this. And, you know, it, it's just time. It's just hearing it, right? And so um, so now you actually have to take a – I'm pretty sure you have to take a medical terminology course before you go into the school because that was like everybody's number one complaint that wasn't um, a medic prior to, to going in. So, yeah, so it was 16 months of fire hose and then graduate there. And um, I went on to Fort Hood and did my phase two. And they said, you're staying here. And I said, okay. When I completed phase two and I said, okay. And so I was a battalion PA and then, and then uh, somehow pinned on major again. I still don't know how that happened because our promotion rate was like 36%. I got promoted. And, and that ruffled some feathers of people that had been a PA a lot longer than me. But I didn't make the decision. So, so how was it so changing then, those worlds from, from the aviation world to the PA world? Um, where yeah, so, as a combat support to now your your combat service support. Yeah, so um well I considered myself as an Apache pilot as a combat arms, but that's <laughs> so um <laughs> I think the so, tanker and you would beg to, to differ on that. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, maybe, but that was a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> so so um yeah so I joked to people, but I think it's accurate that I went and nothing against vegetarians, but I said, it's like going from a meat eater to a leaf eater, um, was kind of the change the change of mentality, the focus. I'm like, you guys are focused on the wrong stuff. And just, you know, you get a doc fresh out of med school that has zero army experience. It's just like, oh, come on, we got a lot to teach you. And where they may be super smart medically, right, but not very smart in the Army. And so um, that aspect of it um, was different. And the mentality of the PAs, I'm like, no, no, no. You guys have to have the wrong idea. We're supposed to be an asset to the unit. Like, we're not supposed to say, no, you can't deploy. No, you can't deploy. You need to change your mentality and say, this is what you need to do to deploy. And if you don't want to deploy, I'll start your med board because you need to go out. And I learned very quickly about how to write in people's notes, right, as far as, because we all know that, that there's people out there that, that are trying to pad their stats for when they get out. Right. And so, you know, you can, I mean, you can, if, if you feel like there's secondary gain, you can document that. And it's all about documentation. And I think that's why, um, my commanders liked me. Um, at, at least that's what they said to my face anyways, was, was because I, I, I was always giving them options for people to deploy, not always telling them, no, they can't. No, they can't. Like, well, currently they can't, but this is what we can do to get them and get our readiness numbers up. And so I think just that little change in mentality and the fact that I had been, um, you know, I'm on a different side of it and not medical is what benefited me as a PA and helping with readiness numbers. What drove the decision um, to retire? Uh, I was told uh, by a mentor at a, at pretty young in my age that said, when you're not having fun anymore, it's time to go. Whether that be to, to resign commission or to, um, you don't have enough time and retire. And the last 18 months 
really put a bad taste in my mouth and I don't really want to get into that. Like I don't want to boohoo a unit or anything. It's just the last 18 months of my career put a really bad taste in my mouth and I knew I was going to miss the people, but I was not going to miss the leaders at all. And so, um, you know, it was just, just the way that they treated people. I was just like, it's just not how you treat people. It's not how you, like, I don't care if you're a battalion commander. Like, you still can talk to people a, a certain way. And it wasn't specifically me. It was just in general how they would would talk and act to people. Because I was, I was the brigade PA at that time. Um, and so I worked for the brigade commander along with the brigade surgeon. <clears throat> so, um, and it wasn't the brigade commanders, some of the battalion commanders. And I just wasn't having fun anymore. So it was time to go. Talk, talk me through the transition from being medical service, uh, a PA in the army, uh, to trying to, to go into the civilian world. How did that go? Yeah. So, um, I was under the assumption that there was going to be a plethora of jobs for me when I got out, like everybody wanted an army PA. Right. Um, I wasn't wrong, but I was wrong <laughs> in the sense that there, there were a lot of jobs, but not jobs I wanted to do. And so I was like, Oh, I don't want to do that. Like, um, they were begging for people to do like exams for VA disability. I was like, I don't want anything to do with that. There was tons of jobs for like family practice type stuff. And I was like, I don't want to be, I just, that's all you are in the army is a primary care. I don't want to do that. And I knew myself and I knew that, uh, being, you know, a tanker, Apache pilot, um, I needed a certain amount of excitement in my life. So where better to get excitement than in the ER, right? And so I started to look for, for ER jobs and um, I found one and applied uh, got an interview and got accepted or got hired since I accepted and got hired and uh, and so the transition was I don't have to worry about readiness anymore like I just can be a PA I just have to worry about medicine this is great I don't have to worry about all the admin stuff. And then, oh, by the way, I have to do this thing on this. I, I felt like in the army, like the actual practice of medicine is, is your side gig, right? Primarily, your job is to focus on readiness and prepare briefs and, and you know, how do we get our readiness up? And, and <clears throat> I was always in an engineer unit. So I never had a meadow. So uh, other, so the infantry battalions or the armor battalions, like they have meadows. In the engineer battalion, they don't. And so not only was I new to the whole army medical system, but I don't have a meadow. Luckily, right, talking about strong NCOs, I had an extremely strong NCO who basically did the job of a meadow for me. And, you know, I still had to go to the meetings, but, you know, he took a lot off my plate. So strong NCOs make an officer's job easy, I feel. Um, but so back to your question, the transition was I don't have to do all the admin stuff anymore. I literally can just practice medicine and hone my craft there. And so it's been, been kind of cool to be in the to be in the ER and, and, and do those things. So looking back on your time at West Point, your time enlisted, uh, your time in aviation, what's the road forward for, for Tom? Yeah. So, um, I guess just, just continue this path. Uh, I feel like I've got a pretty darn good life and, uh, and, and so just can 
continue working. Uh, I recently got remarried. I have a daughter with my ex-wife. I have two stepsons with my new wife and just blending that family and building our life and, um, and doing all, and, and doing all we can for, for our kids and, and, uh, and for, and for us as a couple. And then any closing comments to the class? Uh, so I guess the only thing is we just had our 20 year reunion and it was, it was great to see, but see people and see how much, uh, people haven't changed in 20 years. Um, <laughs> recognizing faces and just being like, dude, you look almost the same. Like just have a couple more bags under your eyes, but beyond that, you look exactly the same, you know? Um, it, it was great to see everyone. I think, uh, I think we're a very special class, right? Um, I mean, the fact that it, it absolutely poured on our, on our graduation and everybody joked that, Oh, we're going to war, you know, and little did we know that, uh, we're going to be involved in a very, very long war. And so, you know, just looking back at everything, just, uh, you know, it's proud to be a part of 2001, that's for sure. Again, thank you for sharing your story. And, and it's it's amazing to see that if someone puts their mind to it and puts the effort, um, what you can accomplish from a, from a kid who wasn't going to any academies, um, to being enlisted and, 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 and getting all of these, uh, college courses started, then going to West Point, then becoming an avi aviation officer like you wanted to, and then changing career paths midstream, uh, and becoming a PA, uh, it's pretty cool, uh, seeing, through just determination and grit, what someone can accomplish in 25 years. Thanks for sharing. Sure. Yes, sir. All right. Till duty is done. Thank you for listening to Through the Gray. If you like this episode, please share with your friends and follow the podcast. We want these stories to be shared with as many people as possible.